Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This coming Wednesday, something big is happening in Milwaukee. The first Republican presidential debate. For relatively unknown candidates, such as our guest today, the importance of the debates cannot be overstated. While most Republican candidates are scrounging around Iowa and New Hampshire trying to find audiences of a few dozen people, in 2016, debate audiences were as large as 24 million people. A single breakthrough moment can catapult a candidate into the national spotlight. Think about that moment in 2015 when Trump's insult comedy started to do lasting damage to his most serious opponents. This is a tough business oh, to run for oh, president. Oh, I know. You're a tough guy, Jeb. And, and we need to have a leader that is real tough. Similarly, a high-profile mistake can tank a campaign. Think about Rick Perry's famous flub in 2011, when he couldn't remember that third federal agency he wanted to eliminate. Commerce, education, and the, uh, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> so in a campaign that has seen very little volatility in the polls, what happens on Wednesday has the potential to actually matter, especially if nobody knows who you are. Our guest today would probably object to that description, but as the governor of a state that ranks 47th in population and who is only occasionally hitting 1% in the polls, Doug Burgum is arguably the most anonymous, serious candidate in the race. So for someone like him, this debate is everything. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Doug Burgum is a throwback to a very different Republican Party. He likes to talk about energy production and national security, while avoiding as best he can talking about wokeism and abortion. If you know one thing about him, it's that he has a lot of money, though he's not a billionaire, as he and his aides are quick to note. Burgum was born in the 50s in North Dakota, where he worked as a chimney sweep. That's not a joke. He went to college in-state, then left for Stanford's Graduate School of Business. After that, he did what a lot of people from Stanford do, worked at McKinsey, helped found a tech company, in this case, a firm in Fargo, North Dakota, called Great Plains Software. He took that company public during the 90s tech boom, then sold it to Microsoft a few years later for over a billion dollars. In 2016, he unexpectedly jumped into a Republican primary for governor as the overwhelming underdog against a political professional, and he ended up beating him. Bergen was re-elected in 2020. So after the software success and the 2016 victory, you can understand why he thinks he's heard it all before when everyone says he has no chance in the 2024 Republican presidential primaries. Bergen and I talked this week about how he hatched one of the most innovative schemes in memory to qualify for the debate, how he's preparing to compete on the stage with big leaguers like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, if Trump shows up how his background as a conservative in the tech world informs his worldview, and why one photograph of him cleaning a chimney in a tuxedo changed his life. It, the debate is coming up, and you have cleared perhaps the, the most important hurdle 
of the early stage of this primary, and that is just getting on that debate stage. So I want to spend the first part of our conversation really digging in to how you did it and what your strategy is to not blow this incredible moment you have to reach all of these uh, Republican primary voters that you might not otherwise re reach that don't know who, who the heck you are. So let's start with how you did it. Explain to people how you overcame the minimum number of donor threshold that the RNC instituted for our candidates to get on the debate stage. Well, first of all, let me just talk about the rules themselves, because as you mentioned, it's RNC. And so these are clubhouse rules. I think some people get confused, like, oh, there's, you know, some kind of law of the universe. No, this is a, <laughs> right. this, this, this is a, a clubhouse rule. And you know, if you clubhouse rule, then you design the rules. They always favor someone and they are always disfavor others. And if you, you think it was a little rigged, well, if you, if you previously held national office, if you had been a pundit on a national cable channel, if you had been, uh, you know, in politics in DC where you've got the Washington post or in the New York area, you got the New York times, if you've got big national papers that are your local paper that are talking about you for the last couple decades, then, you know, if you're a celebrity, you know, TV star, I mean, any of these things like that, this is about who knows you, not right. about necessarily. Well, it's who's, who's it famous. If you, you know, built a business, uh, if you're from a you know, town of 300 people in the middle of the Great Plains, you know, these rules weren't designed for you. So we just went at it like an entrepreneur and we said, hey, how would we do it? This is an online exercise. And when I, we heard about the rules, we said, we're not going to complain. We're not going to mention them. Never brought them up in an interview like I'm doing now. We just never talked. We said, <laughs> we're just, you know, what's the hack for us to be able to beat this rule? And, you know, the RNC was like, oh, if you need help, go talk to these firms. Well, these firms want to charge a hundred bucks a donor to build their, you know, online file, their donation file. There's people, that's a big business is online fundraising. But when you're starting out on online fundraising, you lose money before you make money. And I know that uh, because I, when I was on the executive committee of the RGA, we raised a couple hundred million. Uh, always when you're trying to start doing online fundraising, you have to get the engine going, you know, first before you do that. Right. So I was like, wow, a hundred bucks a donor. I could stand on a street corner and sell flags at the 4th of July. And if that, selling the flag counted as a donation, that would be way cheaper than this hundred dollars. So then we literally went out and found an American flag manufacturer that had a high quality flag that might be selling at Home Depot for 30 bucks. And, and we were going to say, hey, we'll sell that, you know, but wholesale price was, you know, $14 and we're going to sell it for a buck. We sold you know, a lot of flags over the 4th of July and we said, hey, that worked. Uh, what do people really need if they don't need a flag? Well, what they really need is they need re relief from the incredible inflation that Biden has inflicted on the nation. And how would we do that? Well, let's give them the Biden inflation uh, relief card. So that was where the idea was born out of just being entrepreneurs. And then of course we got this thing done for like one fifth the cost or less than what if we'd have gone with some traditional route because we were being entrepreneurs. If people don't know the, the details, the deal was you donate $1 to your campaign and you get a $25 gift card. $20, $20 gift card. $20 gift card. All right. Sorry. I was uh, adding Biden inflation there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fine. But yeah, it was that they got that. But then of course, some people come and they're like, this guy's an entrepreneur. This guy's an innovator. Uh, we don't need the gift card or, oh, hey, I'm going to get the gift card, but I'm also going to buy a t-shirt and I'm also going to buy a mug. And hey, this, maybe I'll give the guy 10 bucks. So you end up not every, everybody that came, you know, the tens of thousands of people, because I'm, I'm sure we must be getting close to 60 because we passed 50,000 donors. We've already crossed the threshold for the September debate for the number of donors. 
And then guess what? They come back. And if they like you and they see you on the political podcast with Ryan, then they're like, hey, I'll give them another 10 bucks. So, I mean, that's the way online fundraising works. Is you, Anybody that's starting a business online knows you start with a lost leader and then you build your customer base. So we think it's uh, delightful that everybody wanted to talk about it. it uh, and we're grateful. I want to say thanks to anybody listening who helped us get on the debate stage. All right. So obviously the point of getting on this stage is so you can tell people about yourself and and bring your message to more people. Just briefly, what are the things you want to get across? What's if you when you finish that debate and if you go into the spin room and you're declaring victory, you're visualizing right now in your head, what is victory at this debate for Governor Doug Burgum? uh, Define that for us. We're in a very different spot than almost anybody else on the stage because virtually everyone else has got almost 100% name recognition, and we're a long way from that. I mean, we're at the other end of that spectrum. So for us, part of it is just people getting to know who we are. Small town guy, uh, entrepreneur, started a business, grew it to a billion-dollar business, 2,000 team members creating great jobs. Those 2,000 team members, most of them came from a couple hundred small towns across North Dakota. We built a world-class company selling product in 130 countries around the world. You know, there's a success story there, but then also then pivoted from that and, you know, ran as an outsider for governor. And then we've had a remarkable run as governor. So there's a little bit of just sort of, you know, solving the Doug who problem. And then they also need to know the three things we're running on because we're not running against these other Republican candidates. We're running against Joe Biden. And we've got a lot to say about the economy, energy and national security and, and how we're headed completely in the wrong direction in all three of those. And, and of course, this format is not ideal. There's no opening statements, 60 seconds per answer. So this is like the Snapchat debate. You know, <laughs> you got 17 seconds or something to make a point. So there isn't really going to be policy, but we've got depth on policy and we've got proof that it works because, you know, North Dakota, we're tracking to have the highest GDP in the country, you know, cutting red tape, you know, unleashing innovation, innovation, not regulation. You know, let's sell energy to our friends and allies instead of buying it from our adversaries. And on national security, we've got to get the job done because we're in a Cold War with China. We're in an actual proxy war with Russia. And then we've got an open southern border, which is, you know, letting fentanyl in the country, which is killing 110,000 Americans. That's 300 people a day. I was getting interviewed by a national channel over my shoulder. There's people crossing the Rio Grande illegally into the United States. And I'm getting asked question after question about somebody else's indictments. Sounds like just based on the last two minutes, if you can get those two minutes in, a lot of people will be exposed to you know, your, both your bio and the issues you're running on. So you've got the two-minute pitch uh, down. I guess it's not quite an elevator pitch unless it's like a skyscraper in Manhattan. But yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what's, how are you preparing? Do you have um, friends that are playing the other candidates? Are you doing debate camp? What's the process? Yeah, the primary thing that we have to do is, uh, you know, keep talking to voters. I mean, you know, there's a long litany of people that have, you know, gone in a room and tried to memorize lines and, you know, cram for finals that have, you know, come out and frozen. But those are the moments everybody remembers. And we what we want to be is talking about real people with real challenges and the what they're up against. Because when we're talking to people, you know, on the ground in, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, they're talking to me about how the Biden inflation is choking them. They're not asking me about what I'm doing on debate prep. So, I mean, it's like, I just want to keep talking to real people and then be ourselves. Every job I had growing up, working on the farm, working on the ranch, working at, you know, I worked as a chimney sweep during college to pay my way through college. Every job I had was one where you took a shower at the end of the day. You know, I think about those people when I'm, you know, I'm on the debate stage as opposed to trying to 
design answers for Washington insiders. It's like, hey, I'm running for the people out there. They're getting crushed under this current economy. And you think you'll break through just being who you are, talking about your bio and the issues just the way we, we discussed here? Well, the voters have to decide. I mean, one thing that we know that people like is someone who's authentic. And so I'm, I can't be anybody other than who I am. And, and this, is who, this is who I am. And this is what we've done. And it's a, we like that position. And we know that in the states like Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, New Hampshire, we were tied for fourth on a poll uh, in recent weeks. And we're tied for fourth and nobody knew who we were. I mean, it's like we're, we're tied with people who've got 100% name recognition. You do the math. Yeah, if we just yeah. get our name, if you get our name recognition up, we could, you know, we could double in the polls just on name recognition. Campaigns don't end in, in presidential politics. They run out of money. And a, a lot of your rivals are, are very likely to run out of money. Some of the, um, I don't want to name any names. I don't, we don't know who's going to exit the race first, but the the Pences and the Nikki Haley's and the and, and the Tim Scotts, folks who don't have unlimited resources, if their fundraising stalls, they can't carry on. Some of them might not even make it to Iowa. You are in a unique position where you can self fund, even though you're not a billionaire. Will you self fund and go as as long as it takes? Will you use those resources to stay in the race as long as you see a path? These races don't work. I, I don't believe in guys that just self-fund. Uh, you've got to have people that support you. And so post-Great Plains, I was involved in lots of other additional businesses and was involved with uh, you know dozens of other successful software companies. Uh, some of them, if somebody took the time, they could look them up. I was chairman of multiple other companies who went public. I've never asked people to invest in anything if I'm not willing to invest in myself. And so that's what we've done here, which is uh, you know I've invested in myself, but this is going to take a group of supporters, but I've got people from high school, college, grad school, in my business career that are all volunteering. I have executives that you, you couldn't afford to hire that are not only working for free, they're writing checks. I mean, so we, things are a little different here. It's not all about, you know, paying consultants. We got a great team of people that are really committed uh, to seeing this thing through. So we're confident we're going to be there in January when the voting starts. And when that starts, uh, we think we're going to be in the right position when the voting starts to present an alternative. Competition is great for America. It's great for the Republican Party. And we're excited to present an alternative of someone who's going to, we haven't talked about thing, but we're going to be talking about the economy, energy, and national security uh, at every stop. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Tell us a little bit about your business background and founding Great Plains Software. And I want to ask the question in a uh, frame it this way. I know there's a little sensitivity around people saying you are a billionaire. Now, um, one, just clear this up. Are you a billionaire? Uh, and if not, what's wrong with being a billionaire? Just clarify that because I've seen reports that describe you as a billionaire, other reports saying, no, that's not quite right. What should we call you when we're uh, referring to you with respect to your net worth? Well, first of all, not a billionaire, never was a billionaire. 
so all that's just that's just incredibly. What incredibly, do you have against billionaires, uh, though? Shot that's shoddy reporting. Uh, you know, we started with this little company, which I was also not the founder of. So we can clear up two things at once. Uh, there was a little uh, startup, Great Plains. I had 160 acres of farmland that I got from my dad. It's not 168 acres. To, 160 acres, one quarter section. Uh, you know, a Jeffersonian square mile is 640 acres. Uh, the 160, you divide that up, that's how you get the back 80, the north 40, uh, you know, all, all on the grid. Anyway, I had 160 acres of ground and I took a mortgage against that, which you're never supposed to when this- I was is gonna say, is it, <laughs> that's, that's the, it. I know nothing about, you know, uh, uh, farmland in, uh, in the Great Plains, but I've always heard if you've got some family land, you, you, <laughs> you don't sell that. So yeah, 160 acres. Well, in North Dakota, A, you're never ever supposed to take debt against farmland that your grandparents or your dad have you know, paid off. And then number two is, uh, it's not enough to farm, you know, because if you want to do dry land wheat farming in North Dakota, you need thousands of acres. And that's what it was in those days. That was before the corn and soybean era. And even today, nobody's got a 160 acre farm in the Red River Valley. So I had this thing that literally was my stake. I mortgaged it, that became the seed capital for Great Plains. Uh, and with that startup, uh, there was a, a group of less than 10 of us that had started it. Uh, the two original founders had had an Apple retail computer store. They tried to start writing software in the back room. Uh, I joined, helped write the business plan. Uh, we launched the thing uh, with this capital and away we went. Uh, and a year later, I became the, the, the president of it and, and then you know, went on and was leading that organization. In 18 years later, we were an overnight success story when we got acquired you know, by Microsoft for $1.1 billion. And I think that's, that's the source the of the whole, confusion. That's the source of the confusion. But we were a public company at a great run, very successful IPO in 1997, at the time one of the top five NASDAQ IPOs. You know, went out at 16 bucks, closed on day one at $32, 100% increase. One of the you know, one of the top five IPO increases ever on the first day. And we uh, it never never broke our IPO price. And we just kept adding value, adding customers, adding and growing the whole thing. And it's still a huge business as part of Microsoft today. And a number of people that worked at Great Plains went on to have amazing careers at Microsoft. Uh, Sachin Nadella, who is the, the CEO of Microsoft, was a direct report of mine during the time that I was at Microsoft. Uh, other other you know leaders, Tammy Reller, Dave O'Hara, that were part of our team at Great Plains, went on to the most senior roles at Microsoft. I mean, chief marketing officer for the whole company, you know, the top CFOs for all the commercial business. So we there's like 50 or 60 kids from small towns uh, in the Dakotas that ended up going to Redmond that helped create Microsoft, which of course now is one of the market you know one of the largest market cap companies in the world. But all of that, I stayed for seven more years after we got acquired. So we weren't selling out, we were buying in. And we did a, uh, uh, but if you go back and look at the transaction at the time we got acquired, when we got bought for 1.1 billion, I owned about 10% of the company. So owning 10% Still not of bad. 1.1. Yeah, it's not, um, hey, for a kid that grew up in a town that didn't even have a computer, it's like, it, you know, it's, and, it's, and it's, this, an only in, it's an only in America story. Let's just say that. It's an only in America as that kind of thing happened. And that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit is because so much of what we associate with the tech entrepreneurs and the the Gates and the most famous uh, names in tech right now, we think of Silicon Valley, we think of uh, you know Washington State, we think of the West Coast, um, and there's a certain culture associated with that world. Was there a culture clash? Did you, did you find yourself uh, sort of a, a fish out of water 
in the tech world? I think people, the first thing when they learn about you and think, oh, this is a guy who uh, made 10% of 1.1 billion, but for, he was, you know, he grew up in South Dakota, this, uh, you know, from, from this North, farming. North Dakota. Excuse me. Grew up, in, grew up in North Dakota from this, from, from this farming family. Um, God, that, I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, That's okay. We have big rivalry, big rivalry going on. And of course, we've been protecting South Dakota from Canada for 133 <laughs> years. And we never well, get any credit for that ever, ever. I won't, I won't even get into uh, the debate over uh, so, some people who want to combine North Dakota and South Dakota into one state. But uh, Not, not, not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. But we could, we could drop the North from North Dakota. We're never going to combine them. But, but then it would be like Dakota, South Dakota, like Virginia, West Virginia. Virginia. And then everybody would, everybody would understand understand kind of the relationship if we had Dakota and South Dakota. <laughs> Wait, which you're, North Dakota is what, uh, number four in the population from, you know, least, least to most, so fourth least population in the country. Who are your rivals? Do you know them off the top of your head who are, who are smaller states? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. But and we've got uh, Wyoming, Alaska, and, and uh, Vermont are behind. There us. There you go. All right. So South Dakota does have more people. Not that there's, you know, not that there's that. That means they're better we're, in any we, way. We're we were catching them though. We're, uh, <laughs> but but of course they have more people because their but, climate is so much more hospitable because they have the word South in their name. I mean, and my ignorant faux pas <laughs> in, in confusing South Dakota and North Dakota is sort of gets into the question I'm trying to ask, which is the sort of uh, coastal snobbery of what you may have experienced as a tech leader. Anything important to say about that? Did that affect you? Did you notice it or yeah. it really wasn't a thing? It was totally a thing. And it drove, <laughs> drove everything, everything that we did because uh, when we were in the bootstrapping, uh, you know, from 83 to 93, trying to get by with uh, friends, family, and fools is what they say when you can't get venture capital and you're trying to grow and like, where do you get capital and who's going to invest in you? You know, every venture firm we talked to said, wow, you got a great product. You got great service. You've got this, you know, Midwestern sensibility. You're really caring for your customers. You got super high customer attention. You're like a hundred best place to work in the country or the smallest company on the list, the fortune. This is all amazing. You've built this incredible culture. You're taking care of your team members, your vendors, your partners, and your customers. Then we'd say, okay, well then give us some capital. And they'd say, well, if you move to Silicon Valley, we will. I mean, it was always hinged wow. to like moving yeah. there. You know, or at that time there was still some going on in Boston, but like we're going to move to Boston or move to Silicon Valley. And we just steadfastly refused. And even when we got acquired by Microsoft, you know, the we said no twice before we said yes. I mean, we're a public company, so you're negotiating on behalf of all your shareholders, including your public shareholders. But we said no when it was a cash deal. We said no when people had to move to Seattle. And then finally, when we did a deal that was a stock for stock deal, so every Great Plains shareholder got 1.1 share of Microsoft and all the jobs, all 2,002 Great Plains team members became Microsoft employees and they became Microsoft employees not only with the same benefits, but they came with the same tenure. If you had started working for us in 1983 and we got acquired in 2001, you were an 18-year veteran of Microsoft the day you started. <laughs> Everybody got went back thing. And so we were on equal par because we said, we're buying in, we're not selling out, you're not acquiring us. You know, if we're part of the team, then all of our folks need to be the, on the same footing that yours is. No, no negotiation like that had ever occurred before. And that's why we just kept saying no. Well, then the Microsoft campus at their 20th anniversary, because when we had the 2,000 people and we got acquired, 1,200 were in Fargo, 400 were rest of North America, 400 were in rest of world. We were a global company. And all of those became Microsoft team members. 
And then we grew it from that to almost 2,000 just in Fargo at the 20th anniversary. This isn't one of those things. I mean, North Dakota and Fargo area is really prospered and there've been probably 50 other spinoff software companies that have occurred in that area because of all the talent that came out of the team that were that we hired, which was you know a lot of small town kids uh, that grew up in, you know, like I did in farming situations and ranching situations. And, and, and so we can compete with anyone. I know that just like our farmers can compete with anyone in the world, we could compete with anyone, but no one believed that you could build a software company in the Midwest, in a small, you know, in a small town, just like no one believes, you know, there's a lot of people that say, well, he can't say, be president. I know where you're you know, going. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. So it's like, this is my whole life as people telling me what I can't do. And nothing motivates me more than that. No, look, and I think that's why people are are becoming more interested in you and, and sort of, you know, Bergam curious is because you did defy the odds with this software company and you defied the odds in 2016 when you ran for governor. I know you like to tell the story about how you were down like 90, 10 or something or 90, you know, uh, 69, whatever. 69 to 69 to 10. We were down 60 you, points. 69, 69 to 10, which is, you know, not, not, not that different from being down 90, 10. Um, <laughs> and you won that primary. I think you partly did it because you had a lot of money. Uh, but tell us your version of, of that story. What made you want to become governor of North Dakota? I wanted to become governor of North Dakota because I had been doing philanthropy. And we were doing philanthropy, you know, and I was working like with the rural high school that I, you know, grew up in. The high school that I went to had merged with another town, merged with another town. Now it's like a, you know, kind of serving like seven small towns uh, with a high school out in the middle of nowhere. And trying to help them with technology and help them with, you know, get their things going on, just moving forward into the 21st century. And then I started asking questions and I found out, what does North Dakota spend on K-12 statewide? Then I found out it was a billion dollars a year. And I'm like, what? I mean, there was no amount of philanthropy that could keep up with what the state was doing. And then the same thing, I was working on healthcare. We're working on some issues related to homeless and new Americans and uh, trying to, you know, at the same time, trying to save downtown Fargo because downtown Fargo was a disaster. And I knew from my time at Microsoft that we were, that we, to get people to move to Fargo, we had to have a healthy, vibrant community where young people wanted to stay and raise families and had cool places to go and great restaurants. You had to build a city to go along or you're not, workforce today is about the social infrastructure and all the things that go with that. So I got really interested in city economics and all the challenges that were going on in cities and saying, how do, you know, how do we design a place that actually works for people? And then there was an open seat and we had been blessed in North Dakota going back for m multiple years. It wasn't a strange thing in North Dakota that a business leader would run for governor and that had happened before. And so when there was an open seat, I actually started getting questions. They're like, hey, would you ever think about doing this? And actually, I was at a board meeting of a company in San Francisco when I got the call. And there's like, hey, Governor Dalrymple's not running again. Would you ever think about it? And without even you know talking to my family, I'm like, well, sure, I might. Yeah, I mean, it's like an executive job because I'll never be a senator, never be a congressman. Zero interest in that kind of political bomb throwing, put on a jersey, red and blue, back and forth. Hey, red, white, and blue, that's me, which is you're, you know, you're serving everybody. When, when there's a blizzard... In North Dakota, we have to plow the roads for the independents, the Democrats, and the Republicans. I mean, there's things that you do every day that are completely nonpartisan. It's just like let's execute. Yeah. You know, when we're so so we are so that part from an operating standpoint, because I was always an operating guy and I saw how poorly government was being run. I'm like, wow, we could make I came home and said to Catherine, 
I think we could take the state in a new direction. And she goes, I'm not sure that's the direction I want to go in. I mean, like, it's like, we, we have this great life. Why would, what, you know, you're jumping into this, you know, this business yeah. of politics. And, and I said, Hey, don't worry. We're not going to win. You don't have to worry about being first lady because it's like we're down 60 points in the polls. Primary is five and a half months away. And then you mentioned money, but the, the I don't think that was a factor. We were competing against someone at the time that had 100% name recognition and we had almost no name recognition. So yeah, you got to spend some money on that. But we went to every town in North Dakota uh, that had you know like more than 500 people. We went to every county seat in North Dakota. That means going to some towns that have 32 people. That's our smallest county seat. We went to all 53 counties. We got out there and we just worked our tails off. And we came in and said, hey, send a business leader to Bismarck. And, and, and that's kind of what we need right now is we need a business leader that understands how technology is changing every job, every company, every industry. And it needs to change it needs to change how we do government. Were there debates in that race? Yes, there were debates. Yes, and, and, and some of them were some of them were more like a uh, park and Rex episode. Uh, <laughs> and, you, and you might and you might say what? Because my when my daughter found out that I had done a debate on the uh, floor of a hockey arena and no one could hear us because the glass was up and they were getting up and moving further away. Uh, so they could kind of hear over the hockey glass. And then the mics went out. So there was three of us and we had to share it. We had to pass a mic back and forth between the different <laughs> candidates. So it's a, yeah, I've done yeah. it, but this is, this will be, I've, I haven't done one before in the Buck Stadium. Do you, do you have a line from any of the debates that you've been in th through your political career that uh, uh, was the most memorable? Not from those debates. I don't back in 2016. Okay. Uh, you know, we went on to win by 40 points and then we got reelected by over 40. So we, we won by the largest margins of every gubernatorial races. And we did that without calling anybody any names. And we did that without, uh, I think, but I think again, just being authentic is part yeah. of what, uh, when people get to know us. Let's talk a little bit about the, a lot of our listeners, uh, who are pol political junkies might not even know your history. Um, I think talking about the, the chimney sweep story is a good way for you to talk about some of these, uh, some, some of your bio. I've, I've heard you talk about it uh, in the past, and it's a, it's a really funny, fascinating story. How did, how did you become a young chimney sweep? Because my understanding is the, the chimney sweep sort of uh, started everything, right? You got into business school based on the chimney sweep uh, uh, background. And what, you know, what year was this and what was it like being a chimney sweep? Is it, you know, you're really going up into the chimney or, you know, how does it work? Well, ha happy to, to uh, get down into the dirty details. Of, uh, chimney, <laughs> See, those, are, those are the kind of debate yeah. line. Those are the kind of, That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> those are the kind get, of quips you up, need get, in the debate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get up into those details. But no, it was, it was, uh, the timing was, uh, I was a senior in college. It was uh, 77, 78 that winter. And there was an energy crisis. America was running out of energy. We we're going to run out of energy, run out of food. There was gas lines, you know, 79 and 80. Uh, inflation was, uh, you know, taking off. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, and, and again, and people thought, I mean, when I was that age, the two things were sure, just like, just like, oh, climate change is this thing that we can't debate about. In those days, it was like, we're going to run out of food. We're going to run out of energy. The world population is going to explode and, and the whole, everything's going. And none of that turned out to be true. You know, population rates declined. Innovation drove massive amounts of food production. The world didn't starve. Energy production in the last just decade has taken off because of innovation, you know, trying to overcome all the regulation. 
But in this case, then people were starting to burn wood at home. People were burning wood in their fireplaces. They were buying wood stoves like crazy. And guess what? They were having chimney fires. So all of a sudden you needed, there was the need for chimney sweeps again, because if someone that hadn't, you know, burned wood continuously, all of a sudden you get creosote in there, it's flammable, it starts on fire. And and historically in England, uh, where you had, you know, wooden homes and wooden neighborhoods, chimney sweeps are a sign of good luck. I mean, chimney sweeps would be invited to show up at weddings, all dirty because it meant good luck if they were there for the, for the thing. But anyway, but the key thing for me was minimum wage had just gone from, you know, like 185 to 235 for minimum wage per hour. And I could get 40 bucks an hour for cleaning a chimney, 40 bucks a chimney. And if I, once I got good at it, I could do a chimney in an hour. And if somebody had three chimneys in their home, you're already up on the roof, you know, two hours, I can do three chimneys. You know, I'm banking 120 bucks and my, you know, buddies at the, uh, you know, fraternity house are, you know, barely making that in a week, you know, getting paid minimum wage on their job. So I was trying to pay my way through college and looking for ways that were, you know, smart and economic. So that was, you know, you do the inflation adjusted on that. It was like getting paid like a plumber or an electrician. And and then I had a 1947 uh, Chevy pickup that I was able to put into use for this project uh, from a guy that had, the guy that owned it had a wood burning stove business uh, so I ran, I sort of ran the bookings in conjunction with him. He was making references. You know, I'd show up in a top hat and tails with my, you know, ladder. We sh- and We showed up in a top hat and tail. Why is that the official uniform of a chimney sweep? I've never understood that. It well, goes was back, this a gimmick? Goes, no, well, it goes back to old England. It was uh, something that they, they, uh, they did. And I'm sure they wore black because you get so dirty that wearing a, like a black tux was, was a way to not look like you were so dirty. I mean, where, you know, I mean, where did you get it? I mean, I got it. There was a, 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 a place in Fargo that had rental Knights formal wear with a K, not with an N, but with, you know, like a, like a King Arthur Knight. But anyway, Knights yeah. formal wear. Well, it turns out that when, you know, they'd rent these things to wedding parties for a couple years and then they would be, when they would just, you know, at the back end, they were just throwing them out because they were, you know, wrecked. So I went to them and said, Hey, I want to get the stuff that you're getting ready to toss out the door. So I, I had uh, multiple, multiple tuxes that I got, you know, from a, uh, being discarded by a formal wear, local formal wear store. And have you thought about, was, you know, Lamar Alexander on the campaign trail in, in uh, I think it was the 96 campaign. He famously wore that checkered shirt. It was his signature shirt. It was his sort of, you know, uh, that that was the visual you associated with him. Have you have you thought about uh, using any of the chimney sweep paraphernalia or the top hat or uh, uh, tails in, in this campaign? I haven't, but I, I got to meet Lamar Alexander uh, last month. And uh, and spend some time conversing with him and getting his bits of wisdom. And of course, I'm now reading. He's got Lamar Ang- Lamar Alexander's little plaid uh, book. It's yeah, got oh God, like yeah. 150 yeah. ideas on on how to run presidential campaigns. But a lot of good, a lot of good wisdom <laughs> well, from that guy. Yeah, well, you know, be judicious in which uh, advice you take because he wasn't yeah. that, he wasn't that <laughs> successful. No offense to Senator yeah. Alexander, right? But uh, but I would say the you but you asked about business school and so then yeah. the you the, parlayed this into getting into Stanford right yes and I and and every place else I applied it turns out uh, so I knew nothing about business schools I was a senior in college I had an advisor Colonel Whiston Wallace who like my dad was a World War II uh, vet uh, and and he uh, gave me a copy of a uh, Forbes magazine and said. You know, hey, if, if you're you know you're a smart kid and you want to be a lawyer, no. You want to be a doctor, no. Well, hey, check this out. Well, you can go to graduate school for business, and I'm like, really, like you know, to uh, 
And he said, yeah. And anyway, the article was about MBAs and MBA programs. And in the article, they listed six programs. And it was, you know, Dartmouth and Harvard and Stanford, uh, the Darden School at Virginia, Wharton, University of Chicago, ones that are still among the top today. And so naively, I'm like, well, I'll just apply to those because those were ones where I knew there was programs. I mean, there was no MBA program in North Dakota at that time. Yeah. So I'll apply to those. At the very last second, after, you know, hand typing up these different programs, uh, different applications, there was a story that went out. An AP news writer wrote a story that had a picture of me sitting on top of the chimney with a top hat and tails. And it's like minus 10. It's in North Dakota. It's black and white photos in those days. Another one with me with a rope scaling up this icy roof to try to get to the top of the chimney where I was sitting. And this thing went viral out on, on AP to newspapers all over the country. And so I just took a copy of that, made a photocopy of that at the last second, put it on top of my application and sent it all in and then went six for six because apparently uh, every wow. top business school, they felt a need to have a chimney sweep uh, from chimney North Chimney sweep affirmative action. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you're a very different candidate and uh, very different than what the Republican Party, what's discussed uh, most in the Republican Party these days. And congratulations on making the debate stage. Really look forward to seeing you there and uh, come back and do this again soon. Great. Well, thanks, Ryan. We'd love to be back with you again. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and special thanks to Joe Dobkin for field production in New York this week. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>